Hello, my name is Isabel Trick and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deep into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we always aim to make sure that you know more than your friends and colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. So for today's edition, we have three interesting ones for you. We are focusing on the G7 summit in Japan, elections in Turkey, and the Black Sea Grain Deal. First off, I have Ed King with me to talk about the G7 summit. Great to have you, Ed. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for inviting me back. So Ed is an associate in the Global Macro team. But let's start with some basics first. So the G7 or the Group of Seven is made up of the world's seven largest so-called um, advanced economies. This includes Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom and the US. And each year, the leaders of these three countries gather for an international summit in one of the member countries. This time round, the summit is going to be hosted by Japan from the 19th of May to the 21st. And while I would say the economic power of the G7 is decreasing with the rise of emerging powers, so G7 members used to make up more than 60% of global GDP in the 70s to the 1990s, but now their share is down to less than 50%, you could argue that the grouping has been even more important in the face of what we're witnessing in terms of geopolitical fragmentation, especially stemming from the war in Ukraine, but also from tensions between China and the West. So it seems surprising that Japan's G20 presidency has actually been somewhat subdued. And you could say that the summit has snuck under the radar in some respects. So, Ed, why do you think that's been the case? Is it just that um, our kind of Western media has been more tuned in in the last few years when we had the G7 summits in Germany and UK because they were closer to home? Or is there something more to that? It's a, it's a good point. I, I think that might be the case to a certain extent. But there's definitely a bit more nuance to it than that. Japan's strategic position is far more precarious than that of any other G7 member. Of course, its next door neighbour is the unpredictable North Korea, which has consistently invested in and tested both nuclear and missile technology. And then a much larger kind of longer term concern is the rise of China, which surpassed Japan as the world's second largest economy in 2010 and which disputes Japan's control of the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. Of course, to the north, a nuclear-armed Russia claims and controls territories that belonged to Japan in the past. And then on the economic front, Japan is heavily dependent on imports that travel through contested areas, like the South China Sea. So I, I think this essentially means two things. Firstly, Japan needs security assurances. And it can get that from allies in the G7 and in the Quad. But it also means that Japan doesn't want to upset its neighbours. In some respects, it, it feels quite comfortable taking a backward seat and perhaps not being such a, an outlandish leader on the international stage. Uh, let's pick up on one of those things you've mentioned. Let's pick up on China. Um, how would you say Japan's balancing act between its own foreign policy agenda and the uh, desires and the aspirations of the other G7 members is going? It's, uh, it's a very good question, particularly given the uh, intensifying kind of US-China rivalry. So um, if, we, yeah, if we talk about some of the other G7 members' views towards China, um, 
just just last week, the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke of prioritizing national security and committing further to friendshoring, where it's essentially restructuring US supply chains along geopolitical lines. And it's also been reported that President Biden will announce additional investment restrictions on China in advance of the G7 summit. So yeah, the US is kind of increasingly um, building up its defences, should we say, uh, against China. And then, then there's the EU's stance on China, which has become less clear over the last month, I'd say. French President Emmanuel Macron and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen both visited China separately over the last month. But while von der Leyen wants the EU to toughen up on China, Macron seems keen to develop a European approach that's independent of the US and based on a more positive agenda with Beijing. Macron was even quoted saying that Europe shouldn't really be caught up in crises that aren't their own, um, referring to tensions between the US and China. And this prompted initial concerns that the G7 would be unable to reach a unified stance on China. But since then, the G7 actually responded quite strongly in the recent foreign ministers meeting and called on Beijing to refrain from coercion against Taiwan. Very interesting. So we have potential additional US restrictions in advance of the summit. We've got a slightly conflicted European Union stance with von der Leyen taking a tougher line, Macron being a bit unclear. But where does Japan itself come down? It's a tricky one. I, from Japan's perspective, it still feels like it's walking a bit of a tightrope. Um, Japan's presidency of the G7 may have given greater urgency to the strategic challenges emanating from both the East and South China Sea. But despite those unresolved territorial tensions, there are some signs of slowly improving ties between Japan and China. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida met China's President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit last November. And since then, Sino-Japanese diplomacy has quietly resumed. It's included ministerial meetings and there's even been uh, a designated defence hotline set up between China and Japan um, to avoid accidental clashes um, in the military. So I, I think it'll be quite interesting to see the tone used at the summit, particularly as Kishida appears quite desperate not to make Japan's troubled relations with China even worse. And he continues to emphasise his wish to build a constructive and stable relationship. But obviously, how do they balance that with the uh, intensifying US view remains to be seen. That certainly does sound like quite a tricky balancing act that the Japanese hosts are facing there. I would like to swivel slightly and move on to um, Russia-Ukraine because the G7 has been one of the most vocal in condemning the war in Ukraine, whereas the G20, um, where Russia is, of course, a member, hasn't been able to do so. What do you think um, could come out of the G G7 on the topic of Ukraine-Russia? Is there potentially a likelihood of new sanctions? Yeah, so uh, as you alluded to, one, one of the important shared G7 perspectives is upholding the international order based on the rule of law. So, you know, members are very much expected to recommit their support for Ukraine. But I think it's going to be a bit of a more complicated picture when it comes to new sanctions. 
there was actually a draft statement that was leaked uh, ahead of the summit, which includes a US proposal to replace the current sector-by-sector sanctions regime against Russia with a complete export ban. And then the only exemptions would be for agricultural and medical products. And this reflects kind of a rising frustration in America with the existing system riddled with loopholes that allow Russia to continue to import Western technology. But interestingly, Japan and the EU both pushed back on that proposal, saying that it simply isn't feasible from their position. Um, And so I think perhaps instead of fresh sanctions, the G7 are likely to continue seeking other ways to hold Russia accountable, and it's, it's likely to include continuing to reduce their Russian energy imports. That's very interesting. So taking this all together, what do you think is going to be the key outcome to watch from this summit? I think there are there are two main things that we're going to learn. Um, firstly, Japan's going to use the location of Hiroshima, where the summit is, to promote nuclear disarmament. Uh, in particular, the G7 will advance its efforts to move from kind of the reality at the moment to the ideal of a a world without nuclear weapons. And this will also involve condemning Russia's nuclear rhetoric, especially following President Putin's plans to station tactical nuclear weapons in the neighbouring Belarus. And then secondly, I think we're going to learn a little bit more about how Japan actually positions itself as a leader on the international stage. The increasing importance of the global south hasn't been lost on Japan. It's invited leaders from Australia and India, reflecting the importance it places on the Indo-Pacific. And also, after a recent tour of sub-Saharan Africa, Japan have invited the president of the African Union, the current president of Cosmos, uh, rather than the usual edition of the South African president, in order to speak on behalf of the continent. But overall, I think this year's summit is likely to present more of a soft diplomacy approach rather than hard decision making. And so as a result, we might have to wait until 2024 when Italy will host the G7 presidency for potentially more impactful outcomes. Yeah, that's definitely going to be an interesting one to watch. I think delocation of Hiroshima um, is going to be hugely symbolic. I once spent a summer there in a summer school and it was absolutely fascinating to see kind of how the legacy of Japan's uh, nuclear history is really visible there. And I think that's going to make an impression on everyone who who visits. So thanks very much. Ed. That was uh, that was super interesting. So next up, I have Alexander Smotrov with me. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Isabel. Alexander is a practice director at Global Council, and he leads our Central and Eastern Europe, Russia and Eurasia practice. Today, we are here to discuss the Black Sea Grain Deal, which has been a really crucial agreement that has allowed the export of both Ukrainian and Russian agricultural goods through the Black Sea. And if you remember what happened to grain prices around the world in the early days after the invasion and the really acute fears of actual shortages of famine in countries that relied really heavily on exports from Russia and Ukraine, this was really a very, very important deal that was struck to ensure exports could resume. And we've picked this topic today because there's a really interesting controversy here. 
The deal was last extended in March, and the UN, which has brokered the deal together with Turkey and Ukraine, believe that the renewal should last for another 120 days. But Russia says it's actually only agreed to a 60-day extension until mid-May. So, Alexander, what has happened there? Yeah, it's been a little bit of a um, grey area there. And if you listen to different parties of this deal, uh, you will have a slightly different picture of what's uh, going on and uh, with different concerns from different sides. Yeah, actually, there are two deals in one. So Russia and Ukraine never uh, agreed uh, anything between themselves. It was uh, a deal between UN, Turkey and Russia on one side and then UN, uh, Turkey and Ukraine on the other side. Uh, but they are kind of two mirror uh, agreements and um, yeah, all the parties um, agreed to uh, four months extension. But Russia uh, back in March said uh, that that part of the deal which concerns Russia is not being fully uh, fulfilled, and that's why they reserve the right to review it uh, halfway through. And uh, Moscow may withdraw if uh, the conditions for its exporters and uh, banks are not eased. Um, so this still creates uncertainty and pressure on other sides, uh, especially as we're now approaching this uh, deadline. So the key question is to what extent the other parties and the wider world are prepared to meet this Russian uh, demands and to what extent Russia will still value uh, the deal and its own participation to continue uh, with the agreement. So if I understand correctly, Russia has always at each renewal kind of made it quite difficult and has had similar demands. So how likely would you say is that a scenario that Russia's demands are not met and that Moscow this time actually does withdraw from the deal come May 18th? Yes, you're absolutely right. So every time when it came to renewal, because the original uh, deal was agreed uh, last July, so they already uh, extended it twice since then. So every time uh, Russia created some kind of a myriad of different reasons to um, keep other partners on their toes and um, play this role of kingmaker and only reluctantly agree to the extension at the very last moment. So it keeps doing so this time as well. Uh, and even this week when uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov was in New York, there, were, uh, another, uh, there was another round of um, all sorts of exchanges and doubts uh, about uh, all this. And I think it will remain the case until the very last moment with uh, all sorts of reasons from, for example, attacks on some um, ships in the Black Sea to uh, remaining sanctions restrictions on the Russian uh, banks uh, and all sorts of Russian shipments being blocked around the globe, uh, be it fertilizers, um, agricultural products or other uh, things. But um, even with all this, uh, it will be probably more beneficial for Russia to stay in the deal than to do uh, things on its own outside this. So we have heard some statements from President Putin, from Foreign Minister Lavrov and others saying that Russia can still fulfill its obligations, uh, especially in Africa and in the global south in general, even outside the deal, 
but from the optics of the international geopolitics and policy, it will not look great if uh, Russia is seen as some unreliable partner or someone who cannot uh, agree on the basic terms, especially when it's the UN brokered and Russia still uh, respects the UN, at least on paper. So, um, yeah, it will be much more beneficial for it uh, from the reputational point of view to stay in the deal, but it will be a lot of push uh, from uh, Moscow. uh, And uh, we've seen some signals from the US and other partners that they can meet some of the demands, but maybe we will not see the full uh, the full uh, kind of scale uh, of uh, the remaining restrictions lifted from from the Russian side. Yeah, it's a very tricky position. Earlier I was talking to Ed about the G7 summit and that the US in a leaked draft was actually pushing for tougher sanctions. So it certainly seems quite diametrically opposed, but certainly a good opportunity for Russia to flex its muscles and show that it holds some of the strings. But equally, um, as you know, I cover Africa a lot and it has been such a big part of Russia's narrative in Africa that it is a reliable provider of grain that I do agree that that could be a danger in trying to to appear too unreliable on that front. So I wanted to pick up on one thing that I found quite interesting, because it looks like the deal works pretty well for Ukraine and for the recipients of the exports. But why have some European neighbors of Ukraine started to become more concerned and have actually one by one started to introduce restrictions on Ukrainian agricultural imports? Yes, this was an interesting unintended consequence uh, of the whole setup, actually, because um, as part of um, the support for Ukraine after the war started last year, uh, the European Union has lifted many restrictions and um, quotas and tariffs on Ukrainian uh, imports. uh, In order to help and ease the the, um, situation, but when the grain deal started and uh, some of the uh, markets uh, could not receive uh, all the shipments they received previously and there was still uh, a lot of back and forth uh, with all this um, uh, exports and supplies. Um, yeah, the agricultural products started to uh, to move in other different directions, including Europe, causing a distress and... Um, some kind of glut of uh, oversupply in the neighboring countries and uh, obviously coupled with all this cost of living crisis, inflation and um, other um, other factors there created uh, quite a precarious situation in places like uh, Poland, Slovakia, Romania and other uh, uh, European neighbors uh, of Ukraine threatening the domestic agricultural markets uh, concerning farmers and so on. And it has culminated uh, earlier this month when uh, a number of European uh, Union member states, uh, namely Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia and also Romania and Bulgaria, uh, tried to introduce some kind of restrictions and limitations uh, on uh, Ukrainian agricultural imports just to keep the prices um, from going too low and... uh, yeah, this caused additional uh, layer of uh, issues and questions uh, from uh, from the EU. And now uh, the European Union, together with the member states, are looking for some kind of solutions, providing support to farmers in uh, in the EU, or trying to redirect or somehow control uh, these experts not to uh, cause another market crash in uh, in 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 the in Europe. 
super interesting just shows that even if you do manage to negotiate a deal that is as complex as this with two parties that are so opposed, even if you achieve all of that, you might still have unintended um, consequences that you did not initially bargain for or take into account. Super interesting, Alexander. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Welcome back to this episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. Uh, yet, I'm Ed. You just heard me talk about the G7 Summit in May, but now I'm back to interview our Senior Practice Director of the Global Macro and MENA Practices, Thomas Grotowski, who's going to talk to us today about the Turkey elections. Turkey will hold parliamentary and presidential elections on the 14th of May. The vote coincides with the centenary of the Turkish Republic this year. After more than 20 years of Erdogan at the helm of government, first as prime minister and since 2014 as president, there are questions as to whether this election could be his last. So Thomas, what are the key issues in the campaign and the likely outcome of this election? Thank you, Ed. It's uh, really a pleasure uh, to discuss this topic with you today. Um, if you look at um, Turkey's uh, economic challenges at the moment, uh, I think it's really uh, remarkable how um, in recent years uh, Turkey's uh, economy has seen you know, high rates uh, of inflation. Um, the lira has lost uh, most of its value. And so one of the key questions, therefore, is whether uh, Erdogan and his economic team have actually you know, uh, mismanaged the Turkish economy for some time now. With inflation still standing uh, slightly above 50% uh, now in March, uh, and with uh, the loss of real incomes across, um, you know, Turkish society, there there is a sense that, uh, you know, mismanagement requires um, a change at, at the top of, of government. Um, of course, we have also a short-term factor that has... Uh, that plays into this uh, election campaign, which is that uh, we saw an earthquake a couple of um, of months ago in in southeastern uh, Turkey, and actually a lot of uh, the blame is for the high death toll is, is put on the government uh, because uh, the government, which is you know um, seen as very close to construction companies, is seen as having um, enforced very lax regulations in in the construction sector, which were one of the reasons for the high uh, death toll. So these are two issues perhaps that I would I would highlight that are really important in this election. Now, who will who will win? Um, of course, on the one side we have uh, President Erdogan and his People's Alliance, so uh, his uh, ruling uh, AK Party together with uh, the nationalist MHP. And on the other hand, we have um, a coalition of six parties. Um, called the National Alliance, uh, and uh, their candidate is uh, Kilic Daroglu, who is the, the, the leader of uh, the People's Republican Party. And so uh, in, the, in the polls, uh, both are neck and neck, and it's really hard to tell who will win. I think it's important to note, though, that um, unless a candidate wins 50% of the vote in the first round, there will be a runoff. And so perhaps... Um, you know, um, there are, of course, questions to what extent the election will be free and fair. Um, the, the, the region where the earthquake uh, took place is still under emergency rule. 
so very much under, you know, um, under President Erdogan's uh, control. Um, and then there's also a question to what extent actually uh, President Erdogan would accept a defeat, especially if it's um, a narrow defeat. That's really interesting. And um, in terms of Erdogan accepting that that defeat, I mean, do you, do you think there's a prospect that this election could actually spur a political crisis in Turkey? I think that's a very good question. And if you look at the last major election in Turkey, uh, the municipal elections in uh, 2019, uh, we actually saw that uh, the president of the ruling party forced a rerun of uh, the election in Istanbul, which went, uh, you know, uh, for the for the opposition, um, and uh, and and that uh, rerun in in 2019, um, you know, you could argue could be perhaps a blueprint for uh, a narrow opposition victory uh, in in this election. Um, of course, if that was to happen. Um, I think you know the, the country would be potentially in quite a, a difficult place. Um, the the AK party would clearly try to mobilize its supporters. There are questions whether you know we could see large uh, rallies uh, in in major cities, um, and uh, and some opposition uh, politicians have basically said in private that they are uh, fearing uh, repression uh, in an interim uh, period, and so of course. You know that is uh, the scenario of a rerun, uh, but then there's also the scenario that actually a rerun again goes um, in favor of the opposition, just as the Istanbul election uh, went in 2019. And so again, the question there whether whether President Erdogan would really be willing to step down, especially if the defeat is is narrow, uh, or whether he would try uh, to spark uh, some other. Um, form of, of crisis to, to cling to power. Uh, so I would say, at least in the, the short term, there's really a heightened risk of uh, of uh, crisis and potentially um, unrest uh, in, in the country. And maybe one one last point um, about that. Um, when uh, the AK party lost the election in 2015, um, uh, basically what, and, and the rerun was held also in 2015, what helped uh, uh, the ruling party was uh, basically an escalation in the conflict with the Kurds, which read, led to a nationalist, uh, uh, or which led to a, a surge in nationalist support for for the AKP, which then uh, led to their uh, them, you know, uh, holding on to to power in 2015. So there are some some precedents which uh, tell us that you know that the crisis could really be uh, the the election. Could really lead to uh, potentially a, a rocky uh, transition period. Yeah, that's uh, that's particularly concerning. I think. Um, okay, and and so if Kilic Darolu were to be elected president, what policy changes do you envisage uh, Turkey implementing? Yeah, as I mentioned uh, earlier, so one of the big uh, issues in the election is just uh, the mismanagement of the economy. Um, the, the lira has, you know, lost uh, much of its value. Inflation has has been very, very high for the last couple of years, and 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 to a large extent, um, the reason for this has been that the central bank has uh, kept interest rates very low, 
and uh, and increasingly so actually at the behest of President Erdogan, who who was quite uh, involved in in uh, in influencing central bank policy, replacing uh, governors who didn't uh, basically follow his his line of of a, mo- a loose uh, policy stance, and so I think one of the the key areas that uh, Kilis Jaroglu would try to get in order is actually restoring macroeconomic stability and especially the price and um, and uh, exchange rate uh, stability. Uh, the way we could see that, of course, is that um, uh, you know that he would work towards a more tight monetary policy uh, to restore uh, confidence in the Turkish economy, also attract again uh, portfolio investors who have largely fled the country over the last couple of years. Uh, and if you have you know external financing staying away from the country while uh, you run a large current account deficit because of soaring uh, energy prices and soaring costs of, of energy imports. Uh, these were large, you know, reasons for uh, for the, um, the the fall in in the lira. Of course, longer term, there is also a question to what extent uh, Turkey can can climb up the value chain in its industrial sector. And I think, especially when it comes to uh, perhaps exploiting its its advantage uh, near near Europe as a nearshoring uh, destination, that is still relatively uh, low cost. Um, but uh, could you know serve as a as perhaps you know Europe's Mexico as an attractive place uh, for for manufacturing investment? Uh, then I think there's clearly uh, the question you know to what extent you can you can uh, climb up the value chain through skills, technology, innovation, all that. And I think Kilic Daoglu's uh, economics team, which he uh, presented uh, um, uh, during the campaign uh, is, is really quite um, uh, focused uh, on that. Of course, there's one important caveat to that, and that is Kilis Daroglu is being supported by a six-party alliance. And the alliance spans, you know, the center-left to actually the far-right. And there are important questions uh, whether, you know, if Erdogan was defeated and if the uh, this coalition basically achieved its main objective of removing Erdogan, whether they could actually govern in a in a fairly effective way and supporting uh, a more or less coherent uh, uh, platform uh, in uh, in Turkey. Okay, so so if he has sufficient support, then we can expect significant focus on the economy, uh, particularly monetary and industrial policy. Um, but it's a question of whether he will get that support. And so that's on the economy. Well, I mean, maybe there's one caveat, uh, of course, that, uh, uh, you know, I think reestablishing central bank independence would be an important part of Kilis Daoglu's task, just as he promised to restore or improve perhaps uh, Turkey's, you know, uh, democratic uh, standing uh, and the, the, uh, the strength of institutions in Turkey. Of course, the central bank. Uh, bank's independence and strength as an as an institution would be an important focus to do that. So it's not that he could just direct necessarily the central bank uh, to write high grades. You know, the moment he comes into office, uh, um, there might be this might be a bit of a lengthier process. Um, of course, yeah, and that that makes sense. And um, I suppose central bank independence will also help improve. The perceptions of Turkey, perhaps, uh, among the international sphere, 
Um, so, so uh, moving into kind of the world of foreign policy, what what do you think a change in government might mean uh, for Turkey's approach? Yeah, so that's a good good question, and uh, of course, you know, it's Turkey's foreign policy has received a lot of attention here in in Western Europe and in the United States, um, and I think it's actually an area where perhaps Erdogan has um, has most approval within within Turkey. Um, I think there is actually a wider consensus within Turkey's ruling and political class that uh, Turkey should play an independent role. That it's you know that NATO is an important anchor. That its economic relationship with the EU is an important anchor. But actually, that Turkey is strong enough and is in a geopolitical uh, important uh, position that it also should be perhaps um, an actor uh, on its own and should not only you know follow 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 Western uh, Western policy. And and one area where that is perhaps uh, particularly uh, pronounced is of course the sanctions policy, where Turkey as NATO member hasn't followed EU and, and US sanctions. And and there is there are even concerns that actually Turkey is helping uh, Russian entities um and uh, circumvent uh, sanctions. And so while I, I don't think Turkey would would you know uh, would give up its independent role as I said um perhaps there, there might be some uh some you know some areas where, where Turkey would try to at least alleviate Western concerns um while not following uh, sanctions uh, as uh, you know, or broad-based sanctions as as imposed by uh, by the West. Also, I think um, in general, uh, you know, if Turkey were to basically return on a path that is seen as more democratic uh, in in the West, then obviously that would also open, uh, I think, a lot of doors in the West, and Kilitaroglu would see a lot of goodwill. Uh, from from leaders here to to work with uh, with this new new Turkey. Um, perhaps lastly, of course, Turkey has, as I mentioned, uh, has opened its its door open with with Russia. Has um, you know growing ties with with China. It has also made um, uh, a rapprochement with uh, countries in the Gulf and with Egypt uh, a priority um, in in the last eighteen months or so. And I think. That's perhaps an area where also Kilish Daoglu would try to uh, to deepen those relationships, uh, in part because uh, Turkey clearly needs external financing, but also because I think uh, at least from his tone he would try to, um, you know, want to see a departure from an Erdogan who has often perhaps retorted to a more more um, a more forceful rhetoric uh, that often perhaps lacked a bit in, in diplomatic um, uh, feel, if you will. And I think Kilic would try to strike a different tone uh, compared to Erdogan. Okay, fascinating. So there is a lot of potential uh, to come out of this critical election in Turkey later this month. Um, do you think we can be optimistic? That's a very uh, good question. So I think my, uh, my longer-term view on Turkey as an investment destination is still very optimistic, has great uh, demographics, a great uh, location, um, good uh, trading relationships, uh, and, and a strong actually industrial base, uh, largely also because of, you know, foreign companies have, have set up there. Um, but of course, there are some, uh, some, uh, some short to medium term issues that uh, Turkey needs to tackle 
like macroeconomic stability, uh, like um, actually restore improving some of its relationships with other partners, especially because FDI in uh, in the more high value sectors actually has has actually not been very strong in recent years. And so uh, actually, I think Tokyo really hasn't been able to fully fulfill its potential as a as a nearshoring location. So I think, um, you know, despite perhaps uh, a short term increase in, in political risk in Turkey, I think medium to long term, the fundamentals of Turkey still look quite promising. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank, thanks very much, Thomas, for taking the time. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, and yeah, let's keep our eyes peeled for what the elections have in store when the 14th of May comes around. Take care. So on this note, we are at the end of our episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. We are definitely looking at a very interesting month of May. We're looking at a G7 summit that will be an important test of Japan's balancing act. We're looking at a very crucial electoral test for Turkey's President Erdogan. And we are looking at a tense renegotiation period for the Black Sea grain deal that does look likely to be extended, but is unlikely to make everyone happy. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we have discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So for now, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ahmed. And thank you, Alexander. And thanks to you for listening.